it's probably come to all of our attention that as we go through our lives, we continue to meet our own minds, reflected in different situations, against different settings and backdrops. And so when we come into a retreat, it shouldn't surprise us that once more we see this mind dancing and reflected in the variety of different situations on a retreat. Now we simplify here, you know, so we don't have big projects to do and big chores to undertake or big missions to fulfill. We simplify a lot of things. And actually in simplifying our lives, it does at times become much more acutely visible the ways in which our minds do dance. So they dance in relationship to whatever is available. We see our minds reflected in the, in the lunch line in relationship to our roommates, in relationship to the schedule, in relationship to the notice board, in relationship to the food. We see the way at these different times in the day as we make contact with the world, how our minds do indeed move. And these are all actually important moments. You know, people often have the idea in meditation that everything important that's going to happen is going to happen on a cushion. That's not so in my experience. I mean, what happens on a cushion is indeed very, very important because what happens on a cushion is that we cultivate stillness. We cultivate attentiveness we cultivate listening, but much of the insight that actually comes to us on a meditation retreat comes to us off the cushion. In the moments when we meet the world, and in the many ways that we meet the world, and in the ways that the world reflects back to us, the changes and moves and ups and downs that our minds do go through. So in a retreat, it is actually incredibly important and significant if we're interested at all in insight. Of course, we may not be. But should we be interested at all in insight, it is actually incredibly important to be giving really a wholehearted attention to what happens for us in those moments off the cushion. So in the talk this evening, I'd like to explore a little bit the ways and the places that become visible to us on retreat as being places where we get hooked places where we see our minds dance, the places and contact moments that really reveal us to ourselves, 
It can be the notice board. It can be our roommate. It can be the weather. Any of these moments, connections, are mirrors for us. The places where we actually get hooked in this variety of mirrors that we look in during the day, I would refer to them as being Dharma gates or gates of understanding. And the reason why these places where we get hooked are Dharma gates is because they do offer us a sense of possibility. The possibility of traveling new pathways of greater freedom in our lives. Now these places where we get hooked or that are a little bit sticky for us, they're also Dharma gates or gates of understanding because they tend to lie between two territories. I mean, in one way, in relationship to these places and moments where we get hooked, we see the territory where our minds tend to travel some very old and familiar, almost ritualistic pathways of reaction and story and projection. And we also see in these same places where we can get hooked or that are sticky for us, we see the other territory that is possible for us. And that is the territory where there's the possibility of understanding, of freedom, of finding some very new ways of being and responding. Now these places in our day here and in our lives where we get hooked or that are sticky for us, I think of them as Dharma gates because they are the places where we learn some of the most important and deepest lessons of our lives. We learn what leads to happiness and what leads to sorrow. We learn what leads to expansiveness and freedom and what leads to contractedness of mind and heart. And no one can actually learn those lessons for us. And there is actually not a better place to learn those lessons than in these very ordinary moments in our lives. In a very real way, when we visit some of these places that are sticky for us, you know, whether it's our retreat adversary or the lunch line or the food or the weather or the notice board, when we visit those places, we are in a very real way visiting ourselves. And everything that we need for transformation is held and offered within that meeting. Now, it is very easy in a meditative path, of course, to be quite hierarchical in our thinking. And thinking, well, you know, the real spiritual path is, you know, having terrific concentration and fantastic experiences. And everything that's not about that is kind of very uh, worldly or less important. 
But we also see how we also carry that kind of hierarchy into our lives where we're very easily tempted to dismiss the ordinary moments and meetings in our days and in our lives as somehow being irrelevant or unimportant. And we may feel, of course, that, you know, that we don't come on retreat in order to study our relationship to the notice board or the lunch line, you know, and that we don't come on retreat in order to look at how we relate to that incredibly irritating person who sits beside us or you know we don't come on retreat to look at how we respond to you know someone sneezing in the hall or the kind of food that is served you know we may feel that we come on retreat in order to have you know blissful moments and enlightening experiences and marvelous revelations because we think that's where we're going to find insight and that's where we're going to find transformation. Now it is true on retreat that sometimes we're fortunate enough to have some of those wonderful revelations and blissful moments and enlightening experiences. They come and they also go. It is also very true that the most enduring companions in our lives are the countless ordinary moments and meetings that make up our day. And within those countless ordinary moments and meetings, we do find the places where we get most easily hooked and lost. And so those countless ordinary meetings and moments are also the most fertile place for understanding. Is that wonderful Zen saying, this is the only truth you find on the mountaintop is the truth you bring with you. The only thing you find in the moment you encounter in this retreat is what you bring with you. What we actually do in this practice, of course, is we study life and we study ourselves. And we learn to bring an extraordinary sensitive attention to each ordinary moment. And in the light of that interest and sensitivity and attentiveness, the ordinary moments are actually transformed. They become deeply special with the power to touch us profoundly. Simplicity, the simplicity that we emphasize on a retreat is one of the vehicles that we use that allows us to bring a sense of appreciation and awareness to the power of the Dharma gates that we keep meeting on a retreat. So basically, we all begin a retreat by letting go, to some extent. We let go of our busyness, some of it. We let go, to some extent, of our likes and dislikes, our control 
all the mechanisms that we have in our life that enable us to avoid the things we don't like and the mechanisms that we have to distract ourselves from also things we don't like. We let go of some of the strategies that we can fill our lives up with. Sometimes the busyness that camouflage is actually the potential power of the ordinary moments in our lives. In learning to let go, I mean, we don't learn to let go in meditation in order to make ourselves suffer or punish ourselves or make ourselves feel bad. You know, that's not the reason this is always talked about. We let go, or we learn to let go, basically so that the possibilities of each moment can be revealed to us. Now this process of letting go is a process. It's not like we just decide to do it once and then that's it. But we are learning to let go of some of the obsessions that we can busy ourselves with, with what we don't have and what we want, the obsessions with the next moment, there are obsessions with goals that lead us sometimes to lean forward always into the next moment. In letting go, we learn to be present. It's that simple. In letting go, we learn to be present and we are present in all of the ordinary moments in our day in a very different way. And in being present, what that means for us is that we are actually invited to welcome what is. Not to have it different than it is. Not to have it conform to how it should be. But we learn to welcome what is. To appreciate where we are. To love what we have. In doing this, we do also begin to appreciate that the mind on retreat that interacts with the notice board and our roommate and the lunch slide, of course, is the same mind that we brought with us. And it is no different than the mind that operates through all of our lives. Now, the hooks here, the places where we get hooked, they can be a little bit fewer in number, but that doesn't make them any less intense. And there are a few factors that are important, perhaps even essential, in our capacity to transform the ordinary moments of a retreat into Dharma gates. One of the factors that's really important is the factor of interest. We see very clearly that when there's no interest, there's really no attention. When there's lukewarm interest, there's lukewarm attention. We also see that interest, to be deeply, truly interested, is the root of all wise attention. And that very passionate interest is actually the root of commitment. 
Interest is what really engages us here and everywhere in our lives. It's what allows us to be a conscious participant in each moment. Interest opens us and allows us to be touched by everything around us. To be truly interested is actually to be engaged on every level of our being, our hearts, our minds, our attention. This theme of interest, of course, is central to every spiritual tradition. I mean, you can imagine if you read the story of the Buddha and somehow it talked about, you know, this this guy wandering around who, you know, bumped into a Bodhi tree one night and decided to hang out for a while and said, you know, oh, it'd be kind of a lucky accident if I got enlightened tonight, you know, or wouldn't it be neat if I had an interesting insight? I mean, the entire Buddhist tradition would be very different, wouldn't it? That's not what happened. But we can also see what it would be like for us here, you know, if we kind of you know, sort of floated into the meditation room once or twice in a day, you know, and sat down the cushion and sort of maybe had this passing thought of, gee, it'd be kind of neat if I bumped into a breath every now and again, or, you know, I happened to notice one or two moments in this sitting. I mean, we would have a certain kind of experience on this retreat. And it would also be very different than the kind of experience we would have if we came, than if we came into the meditation room and said, I'm here. I'm here to be present. I'm here to be awake. I'm here to connect. But there's nothing else on the menu. That is it. The practice becomes really simple. But it's actually our interest that creates that simplicity. Another ingredient in this process of transformation, I think, is the willingness to learn. We should never underestimate the power of our attachment to some of the territory in our heart and mind that is so familiar to us. Even when it's painful, we can be incredibly attached to it. We should never underestimate how many images and beliefs that we carry about ourselves and about other people that lead us to say, I know you, I know myself, I've heard this before. It's really hard sometimes to learn anything when we're filled with so much knowing. To be truly willing to learn in our lives or on retreat is to have the willingness to say, I don't know. And to be able to enter each moment like a visitor, a willingness to see each sight, listen to each sound, be present in each feeling, each each sight, as if it is the first time. One of the great gifts that we could offer to ourselves in retreat and in our lives is actually to really renounce the word again. Because this word again, I think, is one of the greatest obstacles to learning. 
how often we come into practice, you know, and we think, we feel a sensation in our body, we say, oh, it's that pain again. Or we see this thought pass through our mind, we say, oh, it's that tape again. Or we see the person in front of us in the lunch line and we say, oh, they're doing that again. And we can see that when we use that word again, often, how much history it carries. How much in the use of that word we are not only kind of compartmentalizing and freezing our experience in that moment, but it is almost as if we are programming ourselves to have exactly the same response. That sensation in my knee again, flee into fantasy. You know, that person in the lunch line in front of me doing that again. I'll do the judgmental number. You know, that thought again about that particular argument or that particular encounter. I'll do the self-righteous number again. To see how almost we, in, in the use of the word again, in carrying the history, we often deny to ourselves the possibility of traveling new territory. So we learn, actually, to let go of the word again. That sensation in the knee? Ah, how is it this time? How is it in this moment? That person in the lunch line? May they be happy. That thought again? That thought once more? Let it be. Let it be. To open the possibilities of traveling new territory. Then, only then perhaps, we can really learn to smile at the moment. You know, sometimes I really feel that the practice is unfolding for us in a really wonderful way. When we can come into the meditation room and smile at our cushion. No matter what, we can smile at our cushion. We don't know what's going to happen there. We might have a miserable backache. We might have a raging mind. We might have a person endlessly shuffling beside us, but we can smile at our cushion and say, welcome. Let it be. Whatever it is, to let it be. This process of opening Dharma gates may also involve really a genuine willingness to understand what it means to let go. I mean, sometimes we, we get really kind of appalled at ourselves, I think, on retreat. And sometimes we're kind of surprised at some of the deep layers of addiction that we seem to bring into our lives and retreat. We can sometimes see an addiction to fantasy, an addiction to rehearsal. An addiction to avoidance, an addiction to blame, an addiction to the past, an addiction to rehearsing the future. We certainly see our addictions when we sit with ourselves for just a few hours. 
already. In those places where we seem to be endlessly entranced into, captivated by wanting to repeat over and over again. For those of you who had groups today or groups tomorrow, you know, to see the addiction to rehearsal. You know, what I'm going to say, how I'm going to say it, how it's going to be heard, what I need to communicate. You know, sometimes the addictions to some of our thinking patterns about what's gone by. I mean, that conversation with that person who upset it, how many times have we already repeated it? You know, sometimes our addiction with with judgment, our blame, sometimes it's pretty amazing. And we see that some of these addictions, you know, like fantasy and busyness, it's almost like layers of what we believe is a kind of protection around ourselves. But it also limits us, these places where we get really stuck and contracted are the places also that limit us. So we learn to let go. We learn to let go. And one time I was practicing in a monastery in Thailand, you know, and I remember going and sitting in the hall and, you know, waiting for the abbot to come and give me some instructions on how to meditate, you know, and I waited and waited. And finally, on the third day, you know, I got up the courage to go and ask the abbot, you know, what am I supposed to do here? And he looked at me kind of puzzled, and he said, sit down and let go. I thought, oh, that's it. You know, that was the end of the instructions, you know. Sit down and let go. We don't just do it once. I sometimes think of this as being the path of 10,000 renunciations. Sometimes in a single day, sometimes in a single sitting. Letting go sometimes happens, not just because we tell ourselves to, but through understanding and through investigation. You know, investigation and awareness and insight are very often very closely linked. Learn to notice, you know, when you start singing to yourself the old familiar songs about yourself or about the world. Learn to notice when some of those familiar songs and melodies get stuck. Repeat themselves come back over and over. Investigate. Investigate. Don't just tell yourself or command yourself, let go. You know, is this, this is some thing that you just do. Instead, ask yourself, why am I holding on so tightly? What am I getting out of this? What am I really getting out of this? Or what do I want from this? What's the payoff here that leads me to want to dwell in this place that can feel very contracted and very dark and very painful, and yet I seem to want to linger there? What am I expecting to come from that? What is the payoff? Ask yourself why you treasure or might cherish that pattern or place 
so deeply. Even as we can intuitively know it is painful or confusing. I'd like to touch upon some of the collective or shared mental dances that people go through on a retreat that really have the possibility of being very powerful Dharma gates. And some of these shared dances or mental states We become intimately acquainted with them on retreat, but they are also states that run through all of our lives. Now in the Buddhist tradition, some of these states that we really see very often on retreats are called obscurations because they obscure our capacity to see clearly and to live clearly. Now these obscurations are these states of mind that are often visited on retreat are the states of dullness or restlessness or craving or aversion or doubt. Now these states of mind, interestingly enough, are pretty much at the root of every single mental state we experience in our lives think of what dullness is. Now you may have met dullness today at some point. But think of the different shades and the different textures of dullness. Indifference, cynicism, numbness, depression, habit, disconnection. These are all shades of dullness that lock us into a very personal, separated world. But think of what restlessness is. You may have encountered a moment or two of restlessness today. Think of the different shades and textures of restlessness that we meet in our lives. Confusion, anxiety, agitation, discontent never feeling really at home anywhere, but being always on the move, always leaning forward, fragmented or scattered, often very far from contentment. These are all shades of restlessness. Think about the many forms of craving. You may have touched on it here today. But that never enough mind, that feeling of carrying around an inner vacuum that can never be filled, never satisfied, never good enough, never having enough. And how craving in our life is a state of mind that always carries with it a kind of shadow of deprivation on some level. Think of the state of aversion. You may have touched that today. Irritability, annoyance. And the way that aversion in our lives, that companion of aversion, is always so kind of productive. Judgment, blame, hatred, projection. The way through aversion that we carry so many wounded historical places from the past into the present you think of doubt. You probably touched on doubt today. What am I doing here? You know, what is this all about? What are all these people doing here? You may have had that thought today. 
but think also of the different textures and shades of doubt, the skepticism, the paralysis, the fear of commitment, the fear of wholeheartedness, the fear of taking risks. Now some people, especially people who've done retreats before, they have the impression that these states of mind are kind of little symptoms that arise at the beginning of retreats and then after a few days they pass away. Now on some level this is true. After a few days they do pass away. But often not because of understanding these states of mind, but often because once more we feel again in control in a situation which was at first unfamiliar. In the Buddhist tradition, it is understood that these states of mind actually are deeply rooted forces that are really the territory of self. And in the Buddhist tradition, actually, it's really said that it's only the arahant, or the fully enlightened being, that is totally free from all of these states of mind. Now, in a retreat, of course, we touch these states of mind because they are the territory of self. And they're not something to get through, not something to get over, but something to be treated as a dharma gate, a place where it's possible to deepen in understanding. Now, we see the way these states of mind dance particularly in our connections here off the cushion. We see the way that we turn very ordinary, very simple connections into places of great stickiness. I mean, think about dullness, how dullness actually manifests off a cushion. You know, when we're dull, we don't actually really know what's going on. You know, we don't get it, basically. You know, we can go, you know, we, we sort of find ourselves wandering on the building, wondering where everybody is, and then we may notice several hours later that there's actually a schedule, or there was actually a bell, or, you know, we hear people talking about groups or breathing, and we wondered when anybody sort of gave any instructions on this. I mean, dullness, when we're dull, we often feel to be kind of one step behind the parade, you know. Life is happening, and we get it a little bit later. Think about what restlessness is like on a retreat. I mean, nothing escapes your attention, right? You've got to know what everybody's wearing, everybody's hairstyle. You know, you've got everybody kind of categorized already. You know, you've read every job manual. You know, every note that goes up on the notice board, it's like a beacon, you know, it attracts you, you know, you're there, you know, everybody's name. Restlessness keeps us very busy on a retreat, you know, we get very busy. I mean, how many times have we rearranged the drawers in our room, you know, or had so many plans. We see the way that craving jumps up on a retreat, especially outside of sitting. Craving often means that we're in improvement mode. Craving often manifests in that way, improvement, you know? We write recipes for the cooks. You know, we write new procedures for the maintenance managers. You know, we write whole new booklets for the gardeners, you know? Never mind the 
self-improvement program. We really see craving manifest in the improvement mode and the self-improvement program. You know, what I'm going to get out of this retreat, where I should be at already, you know, what are the signposts I'm looking for? Am I doing better than I was last sitting? Craving is very difficult ever to be still. And it is often very close companion to aversion, which certainly jumps up outside of sittings especially. Aversion. How many things we can find to have aversion for? You know, we look at the schedule and we start wondering, you know, who, who wrote all these commandments? You know, why they have to be like this? You know, who are all these depressed people? You know, why is everybody so miserable and uptight? You know, and this is New Year. You know, we should be celebrating. You know, it's interesting the day before I came to the retreat, I was talking to somebody, talking about people coming on retreat at New Year. And she said, they're all depressed. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, they've got to be. You know, all 67 of them, I'm sure they're all depressed. She said, only depressed people would go on retreat at New Year's. Is that right? <laughs> I haven't checked this out yet, by the way. But I was somehow had this idea this couldn't possibly be true. You know, and this somehow must come from a kind of an aversive mind, you know. We see it come up for ourselves on retreat. Nothing can be right. And we make sure it's not right because we have so many judgments to tell us that that is so. We see doubt, you know, and doubt really does, makes it very hard for us. It makes us very hard for us to, to really commit ourselves to anything, to take any risk, because we're already sure we can't do it. Now, one of the very important insights available to us through seeing these mental states is we really do get a sense of the way in which our world, our personal world, is so constructed and created for ourselves on a moment-to-moment level. We really get a sense of the power of our mind to take us on these extremes between heaven and hell. You know, the roller coaster of this mind and its convincing power in its both highs and its lows. We also begin to understand this. We begin to see it. We begin to understand it rather than being lost. And to understand the mind and the way that it creates our world, it does actually take a certain kindness and lightness of spirit and heart. I mean, it's actually not helpful to try and hunt down the mind like some kind of enemy. You know, it's not helpful to try and tame or to subdue ourselves. In this practice, one of the great allies is a certain spaciousness, a certain, I don't know, almost a lightness of being to allow us to see the transparency of some of these changes. And one thing that we really see is the incredible convincing nature of our thoughts. 
I mean, they are so convincing. You know, we can be convinced that that person, you know, in the room next door to us was planted on this retreat to annoy us. You know, we can be convinced that things are set up in a way to make us suffer. You know, once here somebody told me that, or came and actually asked me to move all of the rooks' nests from the trees because they were convinced that the rooks had the power to prevent them from finding peace. Totally convinced that once the rooks were gone, everything was going to be so nice and so peaceful. I mean, in a way, when we sometimes look at some of these constructs, in retrospect, of course, we appreciate that they might be kind of questionable. But in the moment, they can be so convincing, and we act on them. Sometimes it's helpful to see the way some of these states of mind actually feed off each other and interact. You know, say we start a sitting feeling kind of dull. You know, and in many ways, what happens when we feel dull is that everything seems kind of much the same. Boring, we call it sometimes. But very few things seem to touch us when we're dull. You know, they all seem to be kind of at a distance, you know, and nothing really sparks a sense of life or interest or engagement. It all seems kind of much the same and much uninteresting. So sometimes when we're dull, what happens is that that dullness actually gives rise to craving. Because you say, oh no, this is so boring. You know, I want something interesting to happen. You know, I want something exciting to happen. So out of dullness, we can see this kind of voice of craving that emerges. You know, sometimes that craving manifests itself in a kind of, you know, intensity of, of effort, you know, or striving or forcing. Something's going to happen in this meditation. You know, I used to see this a lot, you know, in some of the earlier years in my practice where, you know, craving was often mistaken for right effort. You know, and where meditation was really only good if something happened. You know, something had to happen. Otherwise, your meditation was a waste of time. And people used to go to all kinds of extraordinary lengths to make something happen. You know, often as a response to dullness. You know, remember in one system I practiced in, you know, a big thing was to sit without moving, you know, for very long periods of time, you know. And that made something happen. It did really make something happen. I mean, it really made your knees hurt, really killed your back, you know. And after a while, it absolutely drove you crazy, you know, and something happened. But that was often felt to be a really good thing. I mean, I remember somebody being carried out of the meditation room in a full lotus position, you know, because they were totally unable to move. Something happened. There's no doubt. But often, craving and wise effort are not quite the same thing, are they? You know, and craving, we want something to kind of evaluate ourselves by. Now, craving actually often feeds into restlessness. 
because we can feel like when we want something to happen, want to get out of the boredom, want to be interested in something, we get restless. You know, the eyes get very hungry, you know, for outside the meditation room, you know, we're really on alert, you know. The eyes are hungry, the ears are hungry. It's almost like we want to feed off the world, you know, we want something to excite us, you know. Now, if we're sitting, the eyes and the ears and the body can't be so hungry, but the mind gets hungry. And we see the way that the craving slides into this kind of restless energy, you know. What can I do to interest myself, you know? So maybe I have a little fantasy, you know, or a little planning, you know, or a little, you know, juicy memory to get tied up with. Well, we'll find something, you know, the restlessness gets moving. Now, interestingly enough, the craving and the restlessness, things do happen, but they're not always the things that we want. So maybe we kind of struggle and get restless, so suddenly the mind gets very kind of agitated, there's lots of things happening, but it's not what we want, we're disappointed, so then there's aversion. You know? I wanted something to happen, not this. You know, I didn't want this speedy mind, I didn't want this going on, I wanted something else. The aversion happens. With the aversion comes judgment. You know, this is not good enough. This is not doing it right. This is not looking good. Following the aversion comes doubt. Oh, you know, I don't have the right karma for this practice. You know, I don't have the right spiritual portfolio. I'll never be able to do this. You know, I need to be in a different style of practice, a different teachers, you know, different situation, different time. And we see the way these states of mind are always feeding off each other. You know, dullness, restlessness, craving, aversion, doubt, that they're endlessly kind of feeding off each other and constructing our worlds for us. We are not helpless. This is not just all bad news. We are not helpless. What do we learn to do in this practice? To be still. We learn how to stop and listen. We learn how to step out of the dance a little bit. To hold it a little bit more lightly. To be a little bit less judgmental. To really appreciate the power, the transforming power of awareness. What does awareness do? Is it neutralizes the power of conditioning. That is what awareness does. So these states can arise, but in the light of awareness, they do not have the power to take hold. And we really see that just because something has a long history, it doesn't mean it has a long future. Then we begin to see that these places, some of these states of mind are really powerful dharma gates gates of understanding, gates where we can apply the path. I mean, the purpose of awareness is not to make us a passive spectator upon our own repeated disasters. The purpose of awareness is to get out of the disaster, to find that capacity for transformation, which is why we have a path. And a path implies cultivation, engagement. And certainly mindfulness is an ally. Mindfulness. 
our capacity for mindfulness, is really the factor that allows these Dharma gates to swing open. Part of mindfulness, part of the gift of mindfulness, is allows us to see just what is happening. We can see dullness as dullness. We can see aversion just as aversion. We can see craving just as craving. We can see doubt just as doubt. To be able to do this is actually a great relief. It's the beginning of a path. We know where we are. We know we can respond. Where there is dullness, we really see the need for connection. With agitation, we appreciate its busyness and we see the need for stillness to learn how to rest in our bodies in a single step, in a single sound. Where there's agitation, we see the value of wise intention. Because agitation, restlessness, just pushes us through life, doesn't it? We can see that on retreat. You know, we end up at the tea urn making a cup of tea. We're not the slightest bit thirsty and we have no idea how we got there. <laughs> it's agitation. That is restlessness. You know, it's not magical that we just end, ended up there. You know, a sitting comes to an end and we suddenly wake up in our room rearranging our socks. We wonder, how did we get there? This is restlessness. So we learn to cultivate wise intention. You know, at the beginning of a sitting, at the beginning of a walking, what is this time dedicated to? At the end of a sitting, at the end of a walking, what is this time actually dedicated to? What is it dedicated to? To being awake, to being present to letting go, to finding simplicity. We see with craving the way that it makes us lean forward. You know, you've probably seen that happen a lot, maybe, in the lunch line. When there's craving, we lean forward. You know, our body and our plate is here, and our mind is two dishes down on the counter. And we see ourselves leaning forward in the mind, maybe not in the body. Hopefully we have that restraint. We're not pushing. But we see ourselves in our mind leaning forward. You know, is there enough? That looks good. They're taking too much. Are they leaving enough for me? Will I get fed? We see that craving. We're leaning forward. We do that inwardly too. The end of the sitting. We want it to end, we're leaning forward. We want the thought to end, we're leaning forward. You know, we want the sensation to end. We're le leaning forward, often searching for the perfect moment that, strangely enough, always seems to be just one moment away. So mindfulness teaches us in the midst of craving just to lean back a little to lean back a little, to really appreciate that whatever is present in this moment is everything that we could possibly need for sensitivity, for compassion, for generosity. We need no more than what is right in front of us. We see that when there's aversion, we actually lean back. We push things away, we resist, we tighten up. 
It's a sorrowful place of origin where the entire world seems to be here with the purpose of annoying and offending us. And it's easier to blame than it is to listen. You know, Ram Das once said, I'd rather be happy than right. This is something good to remember in the middle of aversion. You know, I'd rather be happy than right. Because aversion gets us so busy with fixing everybody. Doesn't we want to fix everybody? Fix ourselves, fix the moment, fix the world, you know. This is the aversive mind, and it can be so tight. Sometimes when there's a lot of aversion, it's very helpful to seek joy. To seek joy. You know, when the mind feels very dark and contracted with aversion, sometimes it's really a wonderful thing to go out and just spend a few moments just with a tree. Just with one budding bush. Just look at one bulb coming to the ground. Just to look at the sun glinting off the leaves of a tree. To actually find those places that really touch and open us. We see with doubt that there's a very big difference between wise doubt and the kind of doubt that paralyzes us. To learn to be with doubt is a very delicate lesson in this life because it really means being comfortable in saying, I don't know. Doubt is hard because, you know, we really see in doubt how much we want to be in control and how much we falter when we realize we're not really in control. That we can't predict anything at all. This is a scary place, it's also a magical place. Both live in doubt. And sometimes with doubt we actually see that all we can rely upon is our capacity to be present in just one breath and one step. That there's nothing else we can be sure of. Nothing else we can find a refuge in. And this is actually what faith is. The Dharma gates, the gates of understanding, they are always with us, always available to us. It is mindfulness that allows those gates to swing open. It is interest, our willingness to learn, our willingness to let go. That really makes the very ordinary moments of our lives into moments that are also extraordinarily special. We take just a couple of moments quietly together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.